0: If, uh, if you notice, if you normally uh, take the reflection questions home with you on the back of the bulletin, um, we, I think we've still got last week's reflection questions there. So if you want this week's, they're on pieces of paper out in the narthex and be out this way. They're on tables around. Look for them. I believe uh, Keith is also posting them on the church's Facebook group, and uh, uh, he'll also email them, I believe, to community group leaders, um, for those of you who, who like to use that. We're going to be looking at a passage in the Gospel according to Matthew in the 12th chapter uh, in which Jesus really contrasts two different ways of dealing with the pain, the suffering, the difficulty of this life because every one of us in this room today brought into this sanctuary, brought with us to church issues and problems and baggage and burdens. For some of you, It's sorrow and grief, memories of a loved one who is no longer with us, or regrets about a past relationship, uh, the loss of a job, the anxieties of parenting, the pain of infertility, the bondage of addiction, various forms of financial insecurity, of fear and regret, whatever it is that you brought with you this morning. Where? Are you going to find the resources to deal with it? Because there are all sorts of resources out there, and Jesus is going to tell us that some of them are more valuable, more helpful ultimately than others. He's going to contrast in particular to the religious resources that are always there, that every religion, including the religion of the Pharisees, the religion of the first century, every religion gives you. And he's going to contrast that with himself as something that's fundamentally very, very different. Where do we turn? Where do we run to? Let's look at Matthew chapter 12. We're going to begin in verse 38. And your pew Bible, it's page 1516. 1,516, this is the gospel of Christ. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. And he, that is Jesus, answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah And now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment. That's the queen of Sheba, modern-day Yemen. She will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. Jesus continues, When an evil spirit comes out of a man, It goes through arid places seeking rest, and it doesn't find it. And then it says, I'll return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. And then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in, and they live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this Wicked generation. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him, and someone told him, Jesus, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, is my brother and my sister and my mother. This is Christ's good news to us today. What's Jesus getting at? Jesus is contrasting the religion of the Pharisees with himself. The first thing he's saying loud and clear is that religion, when you run to religion, when you run to the human rituals and the rules and, and, and all of the things that you think if you do, God will bless you and your life will be better. When you run to that, Jesus is saying, because that's what the Pharisees were saying, and they were wanting him dead. When you run to those things, ultimately that kind of religion ultimately makes things worse. It may help you short term, get through whatever it is you're trying to get through, but ultimately it will wreck your soul. Remember, these are the people, these Pharisees, these, these pastors, are the people who, since verse 14, have been actively plotting to kill Jesus. They're so offended by the gospel, and, and they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we need you to perform a miracle. Perform a miracle, and then we'll believe you. And Jesus refuses. He sees right through the insincerity of their demand for a sign, the veneer of civility that masks their murderous intent. They're completely disingenuous, and he sees that because he has been giving them miracle after miracle after miracle at this point for months, perhaps for years. There are blind people who can see now. There are mute people who can speak. There are deaf people who are hearing. There are people who had the scourge of leprosy who were shamed and cut off from their family, who have gone to them and said, look at me, Jesus touched me. Now I'm healed. I have my family back, my home back. Everybody that matters to me. I'm clean, I'm healed. Jesus did this. Jesus rose. Jesus raised people from the dead. There are cadavers walking around alive again, talking about Jesus. And they're saying, oh, Jesus, we need one more. One more miracle. Then we'll believe. All the while... They've been plotting to kill him. Makes me think of Karl Barth, that German neo-orthodox theologian, first half of the 20th century. He was asked in the middle of the 20th century. He was asked, you know, Karl Barth, great, greatest theologian of the 20th century, arguably, it was a trick trap question. He was German. They asked him, "Who is it who killed Jesus?" And those of you who know Christian history, theological history, you know that there are two answers that Christians historically have given. One of them is, oh, the Jews killed Jesus. Ah, well, we had just murdered six million Jewish people. And so those who are trying to soften that blow say, no, actually, it was really the Romans who crucified him. The Jews didn't have any authority to kill. It was the Romans. And Karl Barth, Karl Barth, who killed Jesus. And he answers point blank. Religious people, religious people killed Jesus because the gospel so offends our proudful desire to prove ourselves, to make something of ourselves, to get control over our own lives and put ourselves together and pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Religion Jesus saying, look, look at where it's coming from. Look at where it drives you. They see all these miracles and it's not enough. They're still not believing. And Jesus says that these pastors, these religious leaders, they have more light than anyone else. They've seen the miracles themselves. They've heard the word of God from Jesus himself. They've seen the Son of Man. And yet, that just leaves them without excuse. And Jesus contrasts them with two groups of people. The Ninevites of the prophet Jonah's day and the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, the Ninevites, they were, Nineveh was the most cruel and oppressive of all the ancient civilizations. They, they were the ones who destroyed so many other people groups. They murdered, they pillaged, they, they forced deported people, moving them around. They were known for their cruelty. And, and the prophet Jonah, uh, it's recorded, was swallowed by a, a giant fish, eight, nine, ten feet long, and taken up the river and spit out right on the shore of of Nineveh, and the Ninevites, these cruel, oppressive people, you know, see this fish, bigger than any fish they've seen, and, and they see hands coming out of it, and this slimy Jewish guy gets out with fish sick all over him, stinking like Nothing's ever stunk before. It's like you know the fish market right there standing in front of me. He tells them, the Lord God of Abraham told me to tell you that you need to repent. And they all repented. With one stinky, fish-sick-covered Jewish prophet. And they didn't like Jews. And he didn't like them. Jonah couldn't stand them. He didn't want them. He got mad when they repented. With that little light, they were receptive. The queen of the south traveled 1,200 miles up the Red Sea and then through the desert because she had heard along those spice trade routes, she had heard people talk about Solomon, his wisdom and his God. And so she traveled 1,200 miles with, with a caravan loaded with spices and wealth to present to him just because she had heard from a trader about somebody else's God. You know, it's it's like... Uh, the story I've, I've heard, it's a historical story about the, the Skitswish Indians. Have you, have you, any of you read about the Skitswish Indians? First time, awesome. Um, it was an Indian tribe in what's now, it's a small tribe in what's now northern uh, Idaho. And in 1740, 1740, centuries ago, the chief of that tribe, His name was Circling Raven because he was was sort of the medicine man. He was the healer. He was the judge. He was the leader of the tribe. He was called Circling Raven because he believed that the birds, the ravens and the crows, would speak to him through dreams. And so he was called Circling Raven as they would circle overhead. And and in 1740, uh, around the time of the winter solstice, around the time of Christmas, uh, Circling Raven told his people that the birds had spoken to him, and on that day of the solstice, uh, you know, where Christians celebrate Christmas, uh, that God had spoken to him through the birds, through the ravens and the crows, and that the God, the Creator, the one who made the earth and the heavens told him that, that long ago a child had been born, and that that child had been the Son of God, the Son of the Creator, and had come to save the world. And that as a result, all people around the world should set aside a day of reverence in which they would worship and offer obeisance to the Son of God who God had sent according to the word of the raven and the crow. And so they set aside the winter solstice as a day to worship the Son of God that they knew nothing about except what had come to their chief allegedly through a dream given by birds. And Circling Raven told his people that in a day far in the future, the birds had told him that black-robed men would come and tell the tribe about the Son of God. And Circling Raven never saw that prophecy fulfilled, whatever that was. But 102 years later, his son, in his son's old age, his son named Twisted Earth in 1842, welcomed into their community Jesuit priests in black robes who explained to them about the Son of God who had come, who they would worship on Christmas Day at the winter solstice. And that day, 600 members of the Skitswish tribe converted to Christianity and were baptized. All they had was a crazy old man and birds and some black-robed strangers with a foreign tongue who told them about Jesus, and they repented. What Jesus is saying here is that the Queen of Sheba is going to judge that the men of Nineveh are going to judge. There will be skitswish Indians standing in judgment upon Presbyterian pastors, upon Baptists and Pentecostals, and all of us who do religion instead of bowing our hearts before Jesus, who think that by biblical principles we're proving ourselves and being better than other people. You can do the religion game, Jesus says, but understand there are people with less light, less culpability, who have been more responsive than you, Jesus is telling the Pharisees. He's warning us, of the danger of religion. How'd they get there? Their medicine was religion. Jesus describes it as sweeping their house, getting rid of the demon and sweeping the house. And yet Jesus warns that when you do that, that that demon will come back with seven of his brothers who were worse than he is. The demon is religion. The demon is what you're trusting and it's what you're hoping in. And when they come back, they will, they will destroy you utterly. You know, you think... Oh, gosh, I'm going to get religion. I'm going to clean up my act and get God on my side. I'm going to quit drinking and be a better person. And that's really wonderful for your liver. It might save your life. It might give you an extra decade or two, perhaps, if you're going way too far. That's a good thing. But it gets into your heart, and it makes you judgmental and narrow and angry and bitter and critical of other people's sin and blind to your own sin, and it pushes people away, and it gets to a point where no one wants to spend time with you because your religion has stopped your drinking, but it has made you an ugly and offensive soul that no one wants to be with. It's like when a parent sees their little boy and their little boy's crying. He has his ice cream cone, and his ice cream cone it falls. You know, it's, you just—it's like a train wreck. You see it coming. The kid's holding his ice cream. <laughs> And there's his ice cream on the ground. And the 10-second rule does not apply to things that melt. It's in the instructions. (laughs) And the kid, you can see, you feel awful for him. His eyes start to well up. His lower eyelids start to swell. And you can see rivers of tears start to come down his, his face. And he just starts bawling. And his dad looks at him and he, he wants, he sees his boy. His boy's hurting. His boy's miserable. He wants to help out. He wants to give his child resources to help him with the fallenness, the brokenness, the sorrow, the loss of this world. And so he says, come on, kid, suck it up. Real boys don't cry. Be a man. And the kid wipes tears from his eyes and throws his shoulders back, his chest out. Stiff upper lip. English kid. Uh, Yeah. And he's okay. Until 30 years later when his second wife leaves him because he could never open up and let her in. He could never be weak. He could never be vulnerable. He could never show his 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 insides and he kept pushing her away and he'd insult her, he'd say harsh things to her because he needed to feel strong. Why? Because real men don't cry. Real men are strong. He swept his he swept his house, got rid of the demon. Thirty years later, seven other demons came, worse than before. Beware of religion, beware of what you trust in, Jesus says. Because religion doesn't, it doesn't address the underlying problem. It's the first rule of medicine. You never treat the symptom until you've figured out what it is that's causing it, or at least until you've done a proper investigation. Somebody comes in with chronic headaches. A doctor doesn't just say, okay, well, here's some really powerful drugs that will stop your headache. No, what's he do? He does a brain scan in order to find the tumor that's growing inside of you to get rid of it. Because if you just treat the symptoms, the tumor grows and you lose your life. You don't just treat the symptoms. Religion treats the symptoms. It doesn't treat the underlying lost connection with God and all of the way that affects us and breaks up our lives. You sweep your life up. That's great. But the demons come back because you haven't dealt with the alienation from God. You haven't dealt with the real reason that all this suffering and pain is in the world to begin with. Jesus says, watch out for religion. It ultimately makes things worse. And then Jesus turns around and shows us something very different here. Jesus is something altogether different. He says in verse 41 that one greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was a prophet of God. Jesus he is saying Jonah spoke the very words of God, and Jesus is saying that one greater than that is here. I, Jesus Christ, am greater than a prophet. I am not the one who speaks the word of God. I am the word of God. He says one greater than Solomon is here in verse 42. Jesus is saying Solomon was a king. He was the king of Israel. He was the greatest king in all the earth. He was was the man of wisdom. And Jesus is saying, I'm more than a king. I'm the king of kings. I'm more than a wise man. I am wisdom, the wisdom of God itself. Back in verse 6, Jesus has said one greater than the temple is here. The temple is, is the presence of God to the people. It was everything. It's where the people connected with God. And Jesus is saying, one greater than that is here. I am not the presence of God. I am what? He never says it straight, straight up. He always says it implicitly. But these are Jews. They understand what he's saying. They didn't try to kill Jesus because he said, love your neighbor. They tried to kill him because he was blaspheming by claiming to be more than merely human to be the Son of God Himself. Dan Doriani says this. He says, Jesus manifested in His awareness of His deity. He manifested His awareness of His deity throughout His ministry by exercising the functions of God alone, assuming the prerogatives of God alone, and accepting the honors that belong to God alone. Jesus implicitly claimed deity in at least 12 ways. He claimed three divine rights. He said, I have the authority to judge mankind. That's God's God's prerogative alone. Jesus said at the end of the the age, the Son of Man will sit in judgment upon all the nations. That's a claim. Uh, He said he has the authority to forgive sins against God, which only God can do. He said he has the authority to grant eternal life where God alone has life in himself. Jesus declared that his presence was God's presence as well as the presence of God's kingdom. And he said that the attitude that people took toward him would determine their eternal destiny. Jesus identified his actions with God's actions. He taught truth on his own authority, never footnoting the Bible. He was the Bible. He was the Word of God. Jesus performed miracles on his own authority and not in someone else's name. Jesus received worship or obeisance. You see it at the end of Matthew's Gospel when the disciples meet Jesus on the mountain and they worshiped him. And Jesus didn't rebuke them because he he was the Son of God. He was worthy of that. Jesus assumed that his life was a pattern for others, a divinely authoritative form of life. He applied to himself Old Testament texts that describe God. And in several parables, Jesus indirectly identified himself as the father or the king who in the parable represented God himself. The key point here is that God had spent centuries training his people and drumming into their heads that the, to the Israelites that there is only one of him. Shema Israel, Adonai, L'Henu, Adonai, Had, Hero Israel. The Lord your God is one God. There's only one. Century after century after century, every week in the synagogue, every prophet, every verse of scripture saying, There's only one God. C.S. Lewis sums it up like this He says, Then comes the real shock. Among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says that he's always existed. He says that he's coming to judge the world at the end of time. And now let's get this clear. Among pantheists, anyone might say that he's a part of God or one with God, that there's there's nothing very odd about that. But this man, he was a Jew. He couldn't mean that kind of God. God in their language meant the being outside of this world who had made it and was infinitely different from anything else. And when you've grasped that, he says... You'll see that what this man has said quite simply is the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. Reuben Kendall earlier today said that Jesus is really, 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 really old, really, really old. And he is. That's what Jesus is claiming when he says, "One greater than Solomon is here, one greater." then Jonah is here. This is not just a lawgiver, a guide, or a model to follow. This is not just you know, a path to which you, know, you can follow with your life. This is the one to whom all of the prophets were pointing, the one who is the Savior, the Son of God, who came in love for us, Un- not, not even unconditional, but counterconditional love. Because we were unlovely, he devoted himself to us, gave himself for us to be a Savior, something radically different from human religion. Jesus does give them this one promise. He says, I will give you one sign. When you see me stone cold dead in a tomb, and on the third day you see me walking again alive, then you're going to know that every single thing I have told you is absolutely true. That I am the Son of Man. I am the one who walks before the Ancient of Days, whose days are from eternity who has always existed and whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom before whom all the nations will bow down and give reverence, you will know that it is I whom you have crucified. So how does Jesus address the brokenness? He's saying three things here. He's saying, watch out for religion. Religion makes things worse. And then he's saying, Jesus, I'm Jesus, I'm something fundamentally different. How does he do things differently? He does it differently by redefining who his family is. It's what you see in verse 46 through 50, this whole thing where Jesus has been teaching and then his, his mother and his brothers are, are outside and they're demanding to see him. And, and so, you know, some well-meaning you know, disciple comes in and says, Jesus, your, your mom and your brothers are outside and they need to talk to you now. You'd think, well, that's really important. No, that's, that's their culture because the family even today in the Middle East, you know, family is, is you know, it's, it's always complicated. It's always, uh, family brings strings. You know, family is not like Americans do family as as like, okay, for 18 years I'm legally bound to you, but after that I set the rules and determine, you know, the degree to which we're going to have a relationship together. That's not, that, that's very individualistic. That's very American. And it may be right, it may be wrong. I'm not to judge. I'm just saying the way they do family is really, really different. In the Middle East today, you know, If you are elected to office, you become the mayor of the village. It is expected that you're going to then hire all of your relatives to cush taxpayer-funded jobs. Uh, We call that nepotism in our culture, but in their culture, that's being a good son or a good daughter, because a son or a daughter has certain obligations to members of your family. You know, it's expected that when you're in a family with somebody, that you're going to share with them. Whatever it is that you have, it's patronage to, your, to those who belong to you because you belong to them and they belong to you. And it's your obligation to accept them no matter what they do. And if they're in a conflict, it's your obligation to defend them even if they're wrong because it's your family and family comes first. It doesn't matter who's right or wrong. When you're family, you know, you, you, you can't let them be shamed. You've got to guard their honor at all costs. And that's the way it was then. And so, you know, Mary and, you know, I don't know, Jude and James are showing up at the door saying, hey, Jesus, we need you. And everybody there was expecting Jesus to stop teaching immediately, to drop everything, and to leave and go talk to his mother and his brothers because they come first, because they are family, because he has obligations to them. And what does Jesus say? Who are my mother? Who are my brothers? Who are my sister's? And we, we think he's insulting them. He's not insulting them. He's saying something far more radical than that. Jesus is saying, I am going to redefine for you family obligation. Jesus is saying, I know all of you are looking at me, expecting me to get down from the pulpit and go through that door and talk to my mom, talk to my brothers because they need me. I want you to expect that from me as well. You are my fathers. You are my sisters. You are my brothers, he says. And I want you, to expect me to drop what I'm doing, drop everything in order to be there for you because I am the Son of God and I have redefined my family. My family is all of you who hear my word and who follow me. That means Jesus has obligated himself to show you patronage, to share with you whatever he has. It's now his obligation to accept you no matter what you've done to defend you, whether you're wrong or you're right. He will also pull you aside and, when no one else is looking and lay you to the carpet, because that's also what family does in this kind of context. But he's going to defend your honor. He's not going to let you be shamed. He's going to clothe you with his righteousness. If you have debts that you can't pay, and he has wealth, he is going to pay your debts. Why? Because he's saying, Behold, you are my mother, and you are my brothers. It's like we read about in Hebrews chapter 2, what Michelle read earlier. That Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. He has taken obligation for your sins. He's taken responsibility for your sins. He's taken responsibility for your future, for your blessing, for your children. If you are trusting in him, and all of that is now his, and this was his choice. He chose you. He wanted to do this. He says, "You are my fathers. You are my brothers." Heard the story of you know Steve Jobs when he was a kid. Um, you know, Steve Jobs, his, his, his father was a Sunni Muslim from Homs, Syria, uh, which is a city that's been utterly destroyed in a civil war now. Um, and his, his mother was, was not a Muslim, and the, the, the families did not approve, and there was no question that, that his parents would ever marry and raise him. And so he was put up for adoption and adopted, this little Syrian kid adopted um, by a, a, an American family, and so he was raised in the U.S., and as a boy, he, in his memory, talks about how a neighbor of his uh, found out that he'd been adopted and, and said to Steve Jobs, so does that mean, most insensitive thing ever said, this is a bad neighbor, but said to this little kid, Steve Jobs, said, so does that mean that your real parents didn't want you? And lightning bolts went off in Steve Jobs' soul. He ran away screaming and crying, ran back to his house, told his parents about it. He was sobbing. He was uncontrollable. And his parents sat him down and they put it to him straight and said, no, Stephen, no. We chose you. We picked you out. You're not the child that came to us by accident. You are the one child that we chose. And you are our son. We specifically picked you out. And from that moment on, he realized that the narrative of his life was not Steve Jobs the unwanted, but it was Steve Jobs the what? Steve Jobs the chosen. Steve Jobs the loved. When you understand that Jesus specifically chose you and picked you out and said that you are now my brothers and you are now my mother's, Jesus' mom? You're a Jewish mother. He has obligations to you. And He does it because He loves you. It's the power of the Gospel to change you in a way religion can never change you by addressing the real issue underneath the real reasons that we sin, the real reasons that we, we run to other things by giving us the things that we really need, the security of a family, the acceptance of a family, the love of a family, the, the, the fact that you are under Jesus' control and that He has your back and He secures your future and He likes you. It's the power of the Gospel to do what religion can never, ever do. My prayer for all of you, is that this year you do not sip from the gospel of Jesus. You don't gulp the gospel of Jesus. You don't dip your hands in and wash your hands with the gospel of Jesus. I want to see you sprayed in the face with the water hose of the gospel of Jesus, where it drenches you, where your life is so soaked with the security and the love, knowing that Jesus has you in his hands that He is yours, that He's your Savior, and that He expects you and demands that you actually speak to Him as if He is your mother or your brother, meaning saying that when you call upon Him to expect Him to drop everything, that's amazing grace. That's the power of the Gospel. Many of you have probably heard the story of John Newton, the hymn writer. He wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. John Newton was nurtured by a Christian mother who taught him the Bible at a very early age, but she died after uh, coming down with tuberculosis when Newton was just seven years old. And from the age of seven onward, John Newton was raised not in his mother's image, but in his father's image. His father was a sailor and at age 11, John Newton went on his first of six sea voyages with his dad, who was a captain in the Merchant Navy. Newton lost his first job, actually, in the merchant's office because of his unsettled behavior and impatience of restraint, a pattern of reckless abandon that would persist for years. He spent his later teen years at sea and was press ganged aboard the HMS Harwich in 1744. Newton rebelled against the discipline of the Royal Navy, though, and he deserted the Navy, but he was caught, he was put in irons, and he was flogged. He was beaten for it. He eventually convinced his superiors to discharge him from the ship uh, and put him instead on a ship that carried African slaves to the Americans like human cattle. And John remained arrogant and insubordinate. He lived a life of moral abandon. He later wrote, I sinned with a high hand, and I made it my study to tempt and seduce others. He took up employment with a slave trader named Clow, who owned a plantation of lemon trees on an island off the west coast of Africa. But he was treated cruelly by Clow and by the slaver's African mistress, and soon Newton's clothes turned to rags, and Newton was forced to beg for food in order to allay his hunger. The sluggish sailor was transferred to the service of a captain on the Greyhound, a Liverpool-based ship, in 1747. And on its homeward journey, the ship was overtaken by an enormous storm. Newton had been reading Thomas Akempis' The Imitation of Christ, and he was struck by a line about the uncertain continuance of life. And as the waves battered the sea, and Newton saw his life flashing before him, as he knew that the ship was going to go down to his grave and that his life was forfeit, John Newton confessed faith in Christianity during the storm. But looking back, he later admitted that it was neither deep nor heartfelt. Newton then served as a mate and then as a captain of a number of slave ships, thinking that he could reform the slave trade from within. He would clean up his act. He would clean up their act. He would make it better. He got religion. He treated his cargo with greater care. He taught them the Bible, what he understood of it. But he later said to himself even then that I cannot consider myself to have been a believer in the full sense of faith in Jesus. After leaving the sea for an office job in 1755, John Newton held Bible studies studies in his Liverpool house, and he fell under the influence of revivalists John Wesley and Charles Wesley and the Calvinist Methodist George Whitfield. John adopted a, a mild Calvinist theology and became increasingly disgusted with the slave trade. He felt the convicting presence of God weighing down upon him and he grew deeply ashamed of his role in it, of the sin of his whole life and of even his religion with which he had tried to plaster it over. And in that fear, John Newton met Jesus Christ and his grace and he felt the forgiveness of God washing over him. He felt the experience of becoming a brother of Jesus, a son of the Father, God's favor towards sinners like him. And Newton quit his job and he was ordained into the Anglican ministry And it was in 1769 that Newton began a Thursday evening prayer service. For almost every week's service, he wrote a hymn to be sung to a familiar tune. And he also wrote a book, and in the effort to end the slave trade, in 1787, Newton wrote Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade, working closely with William Wilberforce in a campaign that would ultimately abolish the slave trade throughout the British Empire. A business, he said, at which my heart now shudders. Recollection of that chapter in his life never left them, And in his old age, when it was suggested that he, he was becoming increasingly feeble and they said, Newton, you've got to retire. You've got to stop this work. He replied, I cannot stop. What, shall the old African blasphemer stop while he can still speak? It's amazing grace, friends. The power of the Gospel. So different from religion. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, John Newton writes. The hour I first believed. Jesus, friend of sinners, and a Savior. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, We give you thanks. We consecrate to you the elements on this table, Lord, that you would preach the gospel physically to our bodies, to our souls, to us as a community, that we might live as those who are loved, as those who are set free, as those who have family, who have you as our brother. We thank you. Amen.